0: Podcast everyone, I'm Chad Norman, your host for this Nonprofit Technology Podcast. I want to kick off episode 5 with a sample of the keynote presentation from Blackbot's Canadian Conference for Nonprofits. This clip features Chuck Longfield, BlackBot's chief scientist, sharing a personal story that really demonstrates how technology can help nonprofits.
1: One last thing I was going to talk about is, is that one of the other things that's happening around information and technology is actually at an organizational level, less with the, the methods and channels that people are using. And the organizational level is is that I'm a little bit more familiar with mo- examples in the States, but I'm pretty certain that these things are probably happening in Canada as well, is, is that... Um, 15 of the top 20 um, nonprofits in the states are federated organizations, meaning that there's sort of a national organization and chapters or affiliates all around uh, the country. And um, up until now, the model, the business model for many of those organizations has been that there's local fundraising systems at each of those affiliates, there are local FAVs, um, that the uh, methods that are being used at each of those uh, local areas are different. And um, one of the things that's happening now, because systems are able to actually, over the Internet, provide centralized databases and services out, as well as all the business practices, across a wide range of organizations, organizations are starting to sort of consolidate and define. Find best practices using information and technology to do that. And I was going to use one example that uh, was a very personal example in the state that on the surface doesn't look like a high technology solution, but it wouldn't have been possible without all of this technology investment. And that's for the Nature Conservancy. The, the Nature Conservancy, I have a house up in New Hampshire. It's on Silver Lake below Conway. And on uh, I live on um, the uh, west side of the lake. And on the east side of the lake, there is just beautiful undeveloped land that I get to look out on. And I actually didn't know who owned all that land, but it turned out some little old lady owned it, and she was selling it, and selling it to developers to build lots of homes on the other side of this, this lake. And um, before I actually knew that the, that land was even in play, hundreds and hundreds of acres, um, the Nature Conservancy knew, and the Nature Conservancy stepped in and for millions of dollars bought the land fascinating business model. They actually, at the home office at, at uh, National, they have millions of dollars in a fund and any local office, basically on a moment's notice, can just go buy something that might cost millions of dollars without having to raise the money. They buy the land and then they just promise to pay National back um, at, through fundraising. Talk about you know having its act together because obviously this land would have been long gone if they couldn't have paid market level for it and executed uh, immediately. So anyways, now the Nature Conservancy found themselves owning hundreds of acres of the last pine barrens um, in New England, pristine pine barren land, and um, they had to pay it back. And so, you know, they went to the people around the lake, and they said, will you give us a gift? And and I gave them a gift, and uh, they went away and sent me a nice thank you, um, and uh, I came back to Boston for the winter. And while I was down in Boston, I got a phone call from this woman, who is a uh, major gift Fundraiser, I'm sure, at the uh, New Hampshire office, and she said, "Are you coming up? To, are you coming up to New Hampshire this winter um, with your family?" And I said, uh, "Well, we'll be coming up during school vacation in February to go skiing." And she said, uh, "Would your uh, kids like to go snowshoeing on the land you helped us buy?" And I said, "Probably." And, um, and so she arranged for us to, to um, meet her on this land. And um, she and uh, um, one of the scientists from the Nature Conservancy met us. And she took my three children off stomping through the woods and snowshoes practically hanging off most of the time and just in their boots. And, and they were tracking different animal prints and circling them on charts and stuff. Had a wonderful time. Three hours just trudging through the snow while this um, scientist kind of guy Told my wife and I of the importance of all the pine barrens to the ecosystem of of New Hampshire. Very, very impressive stewardship, you know, for what was not a tiny gift, but not certainly, you know, a, a gift either. That, and I'm sure that they know that we are capable of giving them, and um, and probably likely will now um, give them for that kind of experience. Now, the reason why I talk about the difference between that, you could argue that that had nothing to do with technology. That was just, you know good fundraising stewardship. But the reason why it has everything to do with technology is, is that five years ago, six years ago, the Nature Conservancy remade their organization and out of each of the affiliate offices, those uh, offices they had, they, they basically said um, we want to take all of the kind of busy work away from you. So, you know, reconciling daily deposits and typing in gifts and backing up your computer <laughs> systems and doing upgrades and all of that. And we'll do all that at National. And what we want you to focus on is just two things, conserving land and stewarding and fundraising from major donors. And they then went on a number of years ago to um, announce a billion-dollar campaign in around 2000. And they raised 1.4 billion um, a few, by a few years after that for an organization that really literally in the States does not have a lot of brand awareness. You can walk up to the average person in, in the United States and they may not even know who the Nature Conservancy is to raise 1.4 billion dollars. And you know, they're about to do another very large uh, campaign. So very effective use of, of sort of that organizational restructuring that technology allows you to do and all the business practices around that. So I'm probably way over time, so maybe I should just stop there. (laughs) Okay. Sorry about that. Tends to happen.
0: (laughs) Let's switch gears now and visit our products division to discuss how the documentation and help files were created for BlackBot Enterprise CRM. Because BlackBot Enterprise CRM is fully customizable for each user, creating documentation presented many challenges. Let's hear how the team handled this. Joining me now is David Owens, Manager of Documentation for our Products Division. Welcome to the podcast, David.
2: Hi, Chad. Glad to be here.
0: I wanted to have you on the cast today to discuss some of the issues you face when creating user help for BlockBot Enterprise CRM. When application is designed to look and function differently for each user, it must uh, become more challenging to provide assistance. How is help different in BBEC than in previous BlockBot products?
2: Well, one of the critical factors, as you mentioned, is we have to be prepared for an interface that's totally customizable. So we had to make a help system that was customizable along with that interface. And the way we dealt with that was we have a system that's based on Active Server page.net technologies, and the help file is completely server-based. And we've organized it in such a way that the search can be modified. People can modify the topics we supply for help. They can add their own topics to help. Uh, these are fully integrated in the search, and in addition, they can point to one of their own topics if they want to from a given page in the interface, uh, or they can point to a different topic that we supply, so we offer a good bit of flexibility there.
0: That's amazing. I mean, are a lot of other software companies sort of doing that with a more customizable help? Is that sort of like becoming common?
2: It's. We've heard of some that are trying it, but there really there's not a lot of that going yeah. on right
0: now. It seems pretty, pretty groundbreaking.
2: Now, is the help itself customizable? It is. The content that we provide can be edited or people can add to it for any of our topics, or they can supply their own topics. Uh, if they have a policies and procedures guide, maybe the a Word document, they can drop that into a folder on their server, and it's easily accessible from our help interface.
0: How does context-sensitive help come into play when you're looking at an interface that's different for every user?
2: Obviously, context-sensitivity is a, a key part of a help system, and, and all that means is that when someone accesses a help system, the information they get should be targeted to where they are in the application and what they're currently doing in the application. Uh, one thing that, that we offer is, again, through the uh, active server page wrapper that we provide our help content in, we can provide links that are generated based on what a person has access to on a given page they're on. So if they have access to via security to several features, say an edit a feature or an add feature, that when they go to help, we'll provide a link automatically for those features. And obviously anything they don't have access to that they can't view on a page, they won't get links to that. We Say we supply a topic for a, a data entry screen. So there are a number of fields on that screen. We'll put whatever information we think is valid for that screen into that topic. But a user may have a certain thing they want to enter in a field. Like they may have a policy and procedures guide that says we always enter this type of address. We always enter this kind of information. They can either put that information in the topic we've already provided or they can point specifically to that policies and procedures guide of, of their own so that when someone clicks help on that screen, it'll take them specifically to that information.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Uh, what types of content does the documentation create other than help files?
2: We create several types of content. One one key thing that we also deliver for Blackboard Enterprise CRM are PDF versions of all our user guides. Uh, we do lots of surveys with clients, and we, we talk to clients whenever possible. And one thing we always hear is that, they like PDFs, they like the ability to be able to print up sections of PDFs sort or of the entire thing. They like the formatting of a user guide and that's it's portable, they can take it home and read the user guide separately if they don't have their computer available. So we we offer those, they're available for download on the Black Bob website. Specifically with the kind of content we create, you can kind of group it into three general buckets. We create reference information. Which again, if if someone's on a screen or a dialogue that has a bunch of data entry fields, if they go to help for that, they're going to get some some reference oriented information. Generally it's a table that lists all the items on that screen and what you would do with each of those items. Uh we also create procedures, obviously how to how to do something in the program. We perform lots of task analysis to figure out exactly what clients are trying to do in a program and and offer that information so they can complete a task and go on about their business and finish up and go home at 5 o'clock, which is typically the, the goal we, we work toward is getting people to complete a task uh, and let them go on about their business. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, another thing we create is conceptual information, which is more high-level stuff, overviews and workflows, and typically someone may need this kind of information when they're just entering a feature. Uh, they may be new to it. They may have no idea how the workflow actually works, and so we try to offer that information at, the, at a high level when someone enters a feature.
0: Um, Now, how does your team go about writing the user assistance content? Um, What's sort of the process there?
2: Well, we're a part of product development, so we're involved in a feature. As soon as the feature is implemented, we're there for feature team meetings where we go through the design process and hear the the various aspects of design, and we work closely with development to find out how the feature is being implemented. Uh, We spend a lot of time with, with developers just going over a feature and understanding how it works, as we spend a lot of time with designers, too, to determine what the use case is. Uh, we want to document things, obviously, to enhance the user experience. In design, we obviously strive to make things as simple as possible, but it's a complex program that does a lot, so occasionally somebody's going to need to go to help. And our whole goal was to just enhance the user experience by providing just the information they need at just the right time so, again, they can complete a task. So we do perform a lot of task analysis to figure out what, what the kinds of things people are doing in the program and help assist with that.
0: You mentioned that users like to print out sections of the user guides and have sort of around their desk and everything. Um,
2: So are these versions available
0: for download at BlackBot.com?
2: Yes. The the user guides are available on the support page for BlackBot Enterprise and they can download entire user guides and print up one page or as many pages as they want. Additionally, from the help file which is what's available from the program itself, you can print individual topics but that's more designed for an online experience and people just quickly want to get information and get out and Includes, uh includes a full search functionality, again, that is kind of designed to mirror the browser-based search like Google or any other search experience. So you can search for items from any topic in the help file and, and get a list. We also include a full table of contents, and an index that people can also use to access information.
0: Now, what about as far as the future goes, and we talk about uh, Blackbot Enterprise CRM and everything being so dynamic in the application, which has forced your documentation to be a little bit more dynamic. Is this sort of a model you're going to take going
2: forward with uh, future products? We're definitely looking at what we want to do as a help platform for future products. This is going to definitely be the basis for our future efforts. I think customization is a a valuable aspect, even for products that may not be that customizable. Again, someone may want to have a link their policies and procedures guide into our help content, even if they maybe can't customize the program quite as much. So we definitely see this being uh, rich in potential and something our users can enjoy and use. Cool. Well, I
0: really appreciate you taking the time today. It's cool to hear about all this innovative stuff you guys are doing over here. So uh, thanks for stopping by. Great. Thanks, Chad. Let's move on now with our Getting to Know You segment featuring Melanie Malonis and Tim Kabasco. Since 1845, the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland has been providing midshipmen with the academic and professional training needed to be effective naval and marine officers in their assignments after graduation. Notable graduates include the first American astronaut, Alan Shepard, the 39th President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, and two-time NBA champion, David Robinson. With nearly 80 staff members, thousands of volunteers, and over 52,000 members worldwide, The U.S. Naval Academy Alumni Association and Foundation is an extensive network of people committed to strengthening alumni relationships and generating financial support for the service academy. Let's listen in.
3: Today I'm joined by Tim Cabasco, the United States Naval Academy Alumni Association and Foundation Vice President of Information Services. Thanks for chatting with me today, Tim.
4: Thanks, Melody. Happy to be here to talk to you about the Naval Academy Alumni Association and Foundation, and thanks very much for inviting me
3: please describe your role at the Foundation and Alumni Association and how the two organizations differ.
4: Sure. The uh, Alumni Association and the Foundation are actually two separate tax-exempt organizations, two separate 501c3s. The organizations do share a common president, and to our constituents, we try to act as one organization or one enterprise. One way of thinking about this and how we're organized is that the Alumni Association is really in the friend-raising business. And that means we do typical alumni association activities, and that ranges from class reunion to homecoming to other events such as tailgaters, etc. And then think of the, the foundation as being in the fundraising business. Because the Naval Academy is a government institution, they cannot fundraise themselves. So we are the sole entity that raises funds, private funds, for the Naval Academy. And we do that for them, aligning our fundraising efforts and our energies right with the strategic plan of the Naval Academy leadership.
3: And I know one of the major initiatives you've had this year, actually in 2006, was to keep your alumni engaged in supporting the foundation online. What were some of your initial goals when you redesigned your website last year?
4: It took a long time for us to get from where we were to uh, where we are now. It took about almost a year in planning. And finding the right partners to do that, we're using the Net Community product from Blackbaud to manage the whole website. So, really, the goal was initial goal was to continue to inform and educate every constituency that, that visits the website, and that is usually alumni, but sometimes parents, sometimes friends, sometimes strangers who just happen to our site and want to know more about more about the Nail Academy. Uh, and that was the, the the general goal of the the homepage usna.com. The real strategy is behind the our online community login. And we have about 41,000 constituents that have a username and a password. Again, most of those are alumni, probably 38,000 or so are alumni. And the strategy there was really to make that experience personal and timely and relevant. And by that, we mean since you're logging in, we know some information about you. We know your name, we know your Class, if you're an alumni, we know probably where you live. We may or may not know membership status or donor status. So we try to use that information uh, almost against you, if you will, as you log in to make that experience personal, relevant, timely. And we just launched uh, what we're calling a, a landing page, a new landing page for those who log in. We'll now be welcomed by your first name and we'll show you relevant news articles, maybe relevant because they're classmates in the news or news that is uh, involving your geographic area, and also uh, your membership status. So this is the beginning steps, if you will, of really making the web experience feel much more personal, much more relevant to what you're interested in.
3: And, Tim, on that note, I know you have a a ton of content up there. What are some of the challenges that uh, you face in keeping fresh content on your site so you can tailor that to individuals?
4: Uh, You're correct. That's a huge challenge. And like most nonprofits and probably most higher eds, we don't have a a huge staff to help us with content. So, one, we rely on other sources of content, and that may be just searching uh, using LexisNexis or other search engines to find articles that pertain to the Naval Academy. We use our volunteer leaders as basically content creators, so we will syndicate some of their content, we use the Nail Academy and their public affairs office to help us create content. Pretty much any other source that we can tap into that is aligned with our mission, we will use. The challenge uh, not only is getting the content, but then figuring out on the back end who should see the content, in other words, tagging the content for the specific audiences, and then displaying that uh, on the website. We've gotten pretty good at it, the mechanics of it. Uh, There's never enough content, I don't think, because once you get people used to coming to the site, their expectations continue to rise. And with that, they want to see fresh and timely content. We spend a lot of time and energy making sure that the content that we do display is fresh. So although we're still showing pictures of Commissioning Week, which happened two weeks ago, that area will probably go down here next week just because we think two or three weeks Is probably the right amount of time to keep that information up. And we'll go on to something else. We have a new superintendent that's coming on board on Friday. So the thought is maybe the next general news section will involve the superintendent and let people know who he is, where he came from, and a little bit of a a background on him.
3: And how has that helped you reconnect with your alumni?
4: Well, again, we think that the web experience is we're basically trying to virtualize what happens in the real world. So when you come to the web and you log into online community, we want to be able to start to deepen that relationship. And the first step we think is, is to deepen the relationship with us, the Alumni Association and Foundation. And we give them the opportunity to do um, a lot of things that you could do on paper or on the phone. And that's a lot of that is a profile, address changes, those kinds of things. Our constituents, especially the young ones who just graduate, will move a couple times first year. So it's very important that we Educate them and we train them to come back to the site often to tell us where they live so we can communicate with them. But the next step then is really to help them reconnect with their classmates or their shipmates. Basically, do anything that you can do in the real world, try to use the virtual model to do that. There's many other companies like MySpace and Facebook and LinkedIn who are trying to do the same thing. Uh, We think what we have over those groups is really the affinity towards the Naval Academy. So as we start to work with Blackbot and developing what social networking may look like, beginning stages are this personal, timely, relevant strategy where we can really start to engage people, understand their interests, talk to them about what they're interested in instead of blasting out the, the same message to the entire audience. Let's be very targeted. Let's be very specific about what our constituents want to hear and talk to them in that way. And we think technology can really help us scale to that problem. Uh, We don't think we need to hire a bunch of people to go find content. We think a lot of that will be self-created and go from there.
3: And as part of that online community, I know you have class pages that date all the way back to 1934. Um, How has the response been to that and have you had a lot of those alumni engaging in those communities?
4: Yes, very good question. We have a very engaged constituency. The class of 34 that you mentioned is a passionate graduate from that year who is, has documented a lot of his experiences, specifically in World War II, has shared those online, has invited midshipmen to his site to read about it. He's a typical example of someone who's very passionate about their experience, either at the Naval Academy or afterwards. And what we do for them, all of the classes, and there's 75 active classes, all of the chapters, and now there's 103 chapters, and all the parent clubs, and I think we're probably up to about 80 parent clubs, are all invited to use our web services, if you will. And basically, we'll give them space, and we'll give them an address, a URL, where everybody can connect to them. Basically, give them the opportunity put out content. That relates to them. Many of the classes are doing written histories of their class and their experiences after graduation. Many of the parent clubs are involved with uh, recruiting young men and women into the Naval Academy, and we help them with events and with getting alumni in their area involved. And the chapters also have a geographic reach. They do a lot of social events for alumni in their area. So what we're trying to do is have USA.com become almost the first place you look or anything to do with Naval Academy, Naval Academy alumni. If you want to find out where an event might be held, uh, we think our site provides the most up-to-date and accurate information to do that.
3: Well, that's great, Tim. Is there anything else on the horizon that you'd like to share?
4: Well, I think uh, I think the whole social networking aspect is is something we're very interested in getting along with. We uh, I've talked to BlackBot a couple times about it. We feel like we're missing maybe a little bit of market share to the MySpaces and Facebooks. But we know that because of the affinity of the Naval Academy, that if we offer them the ability to reconnect and to deepen relationships with their classmates and shipmates, et cetera, that they will continue to use USA.com in ways that we probably don't quite understand today, but hope to in the near future.
3: Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. That was really wonderful, and I think you're doing a, a fantastic job of you know getting those older alumni engaged and uh, look forward to seeing what's next.
4: Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's ever changing, and um, that's why it's fun to come to
0: work every day. Well, that does it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank my guests Chuck Longfield, David Owens, Melanie Malonis, and Tim Cabasco. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Until then, I'm Chad Norman, and thanks for listening to the podcast.